Well, we're in a series we're calling Unstoppable, not because of how powerful we think we are, but because of what God has promised to do through his son, Jesus Christ, and his church, his bride of Jesus Christ. And what you need to understand is he's been working on this for a long time, folks. This is not some kind of new endeavor that's just getting up and off the ground. No, 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 no. Over 2,000 years ago now, the case for Christianity was so strongly made that skeptical people, people just like we got living around us today, skeptical people were converted in such large numbers that it changed the entire Roman Empire culture. And you need to understand, we make a mistake sometimes saying, well, I bet those were ignorant, pagan kind of people that were just quick to believe in things like resurrection. No, no, they were thinking people. This was not what they were quick to believe. They were living in a day where people were just as skeptical, resistant, hostile, and unsympathetic to a message that had a message that talks about resurrection from the dead as what we're facing here today. And yet, this is the group that we're going to read about where it was said of them, they turned the world, say it, upside down, upside down. No better place to see this, how Christianity began to make that kind of impact on the culture around it than the book of Acts. So go back to book of Acts with me, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. I hope you have a Bible. I want you to see this for yourself. Acts chapter 17. And I'll begin reading in verse 16. Acts 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, let me put you in some context here. Paul has two traveling companions at this point in the book of Acts, Silas and Timothy. And they were together in Thessalonica, but they went their separate ways and he's left them behind. And now he's waiting for them to join up with him. And for what it's worth, the physician Luke is the one that writes the book of Acts as he traveled with Paul. But Paul is waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him in Athens. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing him, I proclaim to you. Now, Paul launches into a great, big sovereignty of God sermon. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth. And he has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. So also some of your own poets have said, quote, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we're, we're the offspring of God, we ought not think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance 
God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He's given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection from the dead, some mocked, while others said, we'll hear you some more on this issue. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Oh, what do we need to understand from this passage? What do we need to understand from these verses that could help us? Remember how I keep saying this? Help us get in on what God is doing in the lives of people all around us. Folks, take a deep breath. Never in the history of the church or mankind has God called us to try to start something or make something happen. God has been on the move. God has been doing all through history. He's still on the move today. We simply want to know, how do we get in on what God is doing? And so here's what I want to show you today from this passage. I think you can see in this passage five mistakes that you do not want to make as you interact with unbelievers around you. And here's why. These are five mistakes that I see from this passage that the Apostle Paul and the early Christians did not make. And and look at me. It's why God was able to use them so greatly to turn the world upside down. And yet they had no money, no buildings, no body in quote Washington that's in their corner and for them, right? And no slick marketing plan. You're like, how are they going to do that? And yet they were the ones that people said, oh my goodness, those who've turned the world upside down have come into our town. That was the word that was spreading. Without money, without someone in Washington, without buildings, without slick marketing plans, I want to learn and I want you to see how God used them. What were they doing to get in on what God was already doing? Here's the first mistake you don't want to make. Number one, don't leave your faith at church or back at the house. Don't leave your faith at church or back at the house. Look at what I'm talking about in verse 17. Then, therefore, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the Gentile worshipers and in, say it, how often? Daily with those who happen to be there. Oh, listen to me. Paul started by talking to people who were worshipers that would go to a house of worship, but he didn't stay there. He headed out into the marketplace daily to talk to those who happened to be there. Folks, that's where people are, in the marketplace. And so that's where we need to be. That's why, honestly, you've heard me say it before, but I'm probably gonna keep saying it. I'm not a big fan when I hear Christians say, oh my goodness, I just wish I could work with all Christians and I wish I could jazzercise with just Christians. And I wish I could go to school with only Christians and live in a neighborhood on a street with only Christians. There's a place for that. It's called heaven. And you're not there yet. So until he returns and establishes his kingdom fully here on earth, he has called us to group up and be encouraged and worship and hold on to each other and go back out into the marketplace with your faith. Don't leave your faith at home. Don't leave your faith here at the church or back at the house. No. And let me help you understand. I love this last phrase in verse 17. Do you see the last phrase in verse 17? With those who happened to be there. Paul did not have an appointment with anybody in particular. He's just out there with those who happened to be there. Guess what? You are working with those who happen to be there. Did you see the verse as we read it that said God has determined their pre-appointed times and their habitation? Listen to me. We have a sovereign God. Stop wishing you lived in a different part of history. Oh, I just wished it was the 50s again. Or, oh, I just wish it was more agricultural. Oh, whatever. Stop it. He has you here on purpose. God needs his people now. And listen to me. The people you work with, it's not by accident. 
those who happen to be there. The people that you play on sports teams with, those who happen to be there. The people you're sitting in the bleachers with while you watch your kids play and you're with other parents, those who happen to be there. The people that live on your street or in your apartment complex are those that happen to be there. And God wants us to take our faith into those places with us. Let me help you understand this word marketplace. It's the, it's the Greek word agora, and it means far more than a fruit and flower market. Uh, it means far more than that. See, what you need to understand is Athens was no longer the power capital of the world because Rome had taken over Greece. But Athens was still the cultural capital of the world, and the agora was the center of that cultural capital. This was the place. One, camp, one commentator says this, on or just off the marketplace were temples, law courts, state offices, public archives, libraries, shops, concert halls, dance halls, gymnasiums, theaters, and galleries. It was all happening right there. Who was there? Everybody. You had town officials and judges deliberating. You had artists creating and performing. You had businessmen and women buying and selling, and you had philosophers debating and wrestling with the latest ideas all going on in that place. This was the public space and the marketplace for people and ideas. Let me say it to you this way, folks. God never intended for Christians or the church to just sit and wait for unbelievers to come to us and say, what must I do to be saved? If you're waiting for them to attend our services and you're, you're just hoping enough of them will come in here that they can hear a sermon, that's not how the world was turned upside down. I'm delighted when they show up and I hope to, I speak in a way that I can communicate to you and unbelievers. But the large way that we make an impact is when you go out of here and take your faith with you from the church and from your house into the marketplace. Into the marketplace. Into the marketplace. That's how it happened. And, and let me do this. I want to punch a hole in something that you so often hear today. And it's presented as if this has always been the case. Here's, how, here's what you hear. Well, Brad, religion or faith is a very personal and private matter. There's no place for that in the public square. That's personal and private. Hogwash. That's never been the case in all of the history of mankind. That is just right now what gets touted all the time. It's the favorite argument from secularists today that want to erase God from the culture and push God out of the marketplace. Listen to me. There's always a little bit of truth to something. Is faith or religion personal? Oh, yeah. Very personal. But get this. When you have a personal faith in Jesus Christ and he's rocked your world and lives in you, it starts personal, but it's also so pervasive that it changes and flavors and colors everything you see and do and who you are. And so you take it with you into the public square and marketplace because listen to me. You can't leave your faith at home because you can't leave Jesus at home. He lives in you. Now, don't hear, don't hear what I'm not saying. That doesn't mean you stand on your desk and you rob your employer of time by preaching a sermon. Please don't. But do hear me saying, what it means is when you understand the gospel, when you understand the gospel and you start living consistently with it, it starts to shape and change everything about you. How you enjoy what you enjoy, how you see other people, how you, your worldview, why you do what you do. Because... Our faith is not this little intellectual thing. You say, well, now there, that's nice. And you set it off to the side in a little category or hallway or corridor of your heart and say, stay right there. Now go on and do the rest of life. And these th two things never connect. No way. No way. Everything about you is shaped and informed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you take him with you. Don't leave your faith at the church or at the house. Mistake number two. Don't let your feelings just rage against unbelievers. Oh my goodness, my heart breaks because I am hearing too much rage. Too much rage, Christians. Too much rage. Folks, I know emotions are at an all-time high. 
unbelievers don't have self-control because they don't have the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It doesn't matter how they rail against us. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. Do not begin to talk and respond in kind. I know emotions are at an all-time high between people of faith and the secularists. I know you may feel more scared and unsettled than ever before. I know that. But listen to me. Even with Christianity, I sense that, you know, today here in America, it just seems like Christianity is the favorite whipping boy, punching bag, object of ridicule. I know, I feel it also. But listen, even in the face of how we are treated or raged against, your only and dominant emotion should never be solely rage. No, no. And for those of you that are afraid, afraid let me help you here. 1 John 4.18, this is bonus. You might want to write this down. It's not even in your outline. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out, say it, fear. If you are just ripped and gripped with fear, ask God to fill you with more love. Love, 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 love. Oh, will you have strong emotions as a believer? I hope you do. Don't hear me saying, oh, we're to be dispassionate about Christianity. Oh, we're to be impassive, passive. No, 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 no. You will have strong emotions, I hope. Because let me show you what it looked like in the Apostle Paul as he stood in the marketplace in Athens. And in a sense, folks, it was like an emotional sensory overload as he saw all that was happening, who people were, what they were doing, why they were doing it, all that was going on. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols but here's the mistake I don't want you to make. When you hear that word provoked, if we made a word association game, what emotion would you most often think of? Anger. Do not do that. Do not do that with this word. It's not synonymous with rage. Because it's the Greek word paroxno. And it's actually a hard word to translate because it's pretty complicated. It's complex. There's more than one thing running through it. It literally means to be ripped with contradictory emotions to be ripped with contradictory emotions and when you dig down into the word you find that the two contradictory emotions are indignation and compassion indignation and compassion Listen to me, it is most appropriate as a believer who loves God and loves the Savior and knows he died for us. It is most appropriate to have a measure of indignation for the glory of God and the goodness of God and the holiness of God. As you see people in our world belittle him and despise him and sin against him and reject him and mock him. It would be wrong if you didn't have some indignation, if you say you love him and you know him. But folks, listen to me. That's not the only thing we should be feeling. You better have an equally strong emotion of compassion for unbelievers because you understand these unbelievers who belittle and mock and reject or ignore God are trapped just like you were before God rescued you. We've got too many Christians who have forgotten what it was like to be lost. Paul Hatton, you remember Paul? This was Paul raging against the church named Saul. His campaign was to persecute Christians, stamp out the church. He was a murderer. He was breathing threats. And God struck him, revealed Jesus Christ to him, changed him to Paul and set him on this course. But he never got over or forgot from whence he'd come how lost he was and how grateful he was that God had made him an object of mercy. Some of you have forgotten and it's why you're just so filled with rage against unbelievers instead of compassion. It's time to remember how lost you were. Amen. How lost you were. John Stott, the commentator, says this. He says, the reason we don't speak to other people the way Paul spoke is because we don't see people the way Paul saw them. And the reason we don't see people the way he saw them is we don't feel what Paul felt. It'd be good to just stop and ask yourself, consider, am I provoked the way Paul was provoked? 
Do I have strong, am I ripped with strong, contradictory emotions of indignation over the sin and the, where our culture's gone and how bad it is and compassion for how lost they are and broken and confused and trapped or is it just largely rage and indignation? Ask God to break your heart. See, as you get closer to Jesus and you spend time with your Lord, his heart starts to become your heart. And he did not just rail against sinners. In fact, his rage and his railing was almost always directed to self-righteous church religious people. That's where he acted that way. Not broken, lost sinners. I hope you're gripped with the holiness of God. I hope you're gripped with a hatred of sin. But I hope you are gripped with compassion for lost people. Because the Apostle Paul was, the early church was, and let's just push them off the table. Your Savior, Jesus Christ, was. And you say you're a Christ follower? Folks, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the Gospels, eight times, eight times, it uses this phrase, and Jesus was moved with compassion when he looked out at the multitudes because he saw them as scattered and weary and having no shepherd and confused. That that's, should be what we're feeling, not just rage. So what can it help us? What can help us be ripped with contradictory feelings of indignation and compassion rather than just gripped with fear and rage. I'll tell you what will help. It's mistake number three that I don't want you to make. Don't ever forget what the real problem is for unbelievers because it's still the real problem that we have. Don't ever forget what the real problem is for unbelievers. It's not an intellectual problem, folks. It's deeper and bigger than that. It's the same problem that you still have. It's just that Jesus now lives in you. Resurrected power. Jesus lives in you to help you see it and fight against it in ways that you could not before you knew Christ. Because before you were blind to it and enslaved by it. What am I talking about? Idolatry. Did you see it? Look at verse 16. It says, Paul's spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Now, some of you might be pushing back right now and saying, well, sure it was, Brad. It was Athens way back then. There were statues of Aphrodite and Ares and Apollo and Bacchus for crying out loud. Well, I agree. But are our cities any less given over to idols? even if you might not see one in the front yard. And let me help you here. The word saw, when it says he saw that the city was given over to idols, it's not the simple, ordinary Greek word they have for see. There's a regular Greek word for see that it's blepo. It just simply means to take a look and notice. Luke, writing this account, did not use that word. He used the Greek word theoreo, that means to theorize or get beneath the surface to investigate what's really going on. Paul saw more than just the busyness and the noise and the sin and the immorality. Paul saw below the surface the idolatry of chasing after. Why? He saw motives and desires that drive people to why I do what I do, why I want what I want, why I think what I think, why I go where I go, why I say what I say. Paul saw beneath the surface of all the commerce and art and pleasure and philosophy and sexual immorality and recognized the enslavement of idolatry that was driving everyone. See, folks, you need to understand the real problem in our world today is not just that, uh, that unbelievers are trapped and cut off from Jesus by so much horrible sin. There is plenty of that. It's worse than that. It's also that they're guilty of the same thing we're all guilty of from birth, of trying to take good things and turn them into God things. To take art, to take pleasure, to take food, to take sexual pleasure, to take family, to take friendship, to take my work and to turn it into a God thing that fully satisfies me 
It's my whole world so that I don't need God and I can be independent of God. Idolatry drives people to even take good things and make them into God things to be satisfied so that I don't need to turn to God and I can be autonomous, but it doesn't work. It will crush you and leave you looking for what's next, looking for what's next, looking for what's next. See, we're created in the image of God, folks, all of us, unbelievers and believers, in the image of God, which means we're all worshipers by nature. Christians are not the only ones that worship. Everybody is a worshiper. Everybody, because they're created in the image of God, needs to fill that void. There needs to be a reason for why I do what I do. I need to build my world around something. I need to form my identity attached to something. There's got to be this reason And so we're idolaters, idolaters, idolaters. Douglas Coupland in his book, Life After God, he's not a believer. Life After God speaks for millions of Americans today when he says this, I think I'm a broken person. I seriously question the road my life has taken and I endlessly rehash the compromises I've made in my life. I put up with halfway relationships so as not to have to worry about loneliness. I've lost the ability to recapture the pure feelings of my younger years in exchange for a streamlined, narrow-mindedness that I assumed would propel me to the top. What a joke. And then he confesses this at the end of his book. He says, now here's my secret. I tell it to you with an openness of heart that I doubt I shall ever achieve again. So I pray that you're in a quiet room as you hear these words. My secret is that I need God. I am sick and can no longer make it alone. What's going on there? Why? Why that confession? Why millions of other Americans feeling the same thing, whether they'll say it or not? They may look angry, folks. They may be mocking you, but they are hurting and confused and grasping and searching because they're sick and can no longer. Now, you may catch them at at brief little moments where it's all as well, but it's brief. I'll tell you why. The answer's in verse 28. Why they're sick and can no longer make it. Verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. Human beings cannot live life effectively without God. There is no life after God. It just turns into a living death. The walking dead. There is no life after God. So how do we start these God conversations with unbelievers around us that I hope you'll begin to see more confused, trapped, hurting rather than the enemy? How do we start these God conversations? I've said this more than once, but here it is again. Mistake number four. Don't think you have to start by attacking unbelievers. Paul didn't. Look at verse 17. Therefore, he reasoned with them. It doesn't say he screamed at them, you filthy idolaters, you pagans, you God-haters. He didn't have on the side of his chariot painted, turn or burn, turn or burn, turn or burn. But very effective, not. That's not what he did. He reasoned with them. He began a civil, respectful conversation And so should we. If there's anyone screaming in the conversation, it should be them and not us. If there's anyone that takes it to a personal level and begins to attack character and take it off point on the issue, it should be them, not us. See, the Greek word for reasoned right there is dialegomai. What word do you think we get in our English from that? Dialogue, which gives you a much greater sense of talking, asking questions, listening, Here's something that I truly believe, folks. Christians would be more effective if they listened more and talked less. You're saying too much too soon, and it gives the person the the feeling, they don't even know where I'm coming from, and you think you do, you just think you're lost. That's all I need to know. No, it would help you if you listened more. Ask questions, listen, and then when you begin to talk, you might be more on point with something that will prick them and help them. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Don't hear me saying there's no place for straight up preaching and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection because he does that. Look at the end of verse 18. It says he preached Jesus and the resurrection, but he did not start there. That was not his starting point. 
And I love this. He looked for common ground. He looked for common ground. That's what he's doing in verse 22 and 23 when he says, hey, I see that you are very religious. I saw this altar even to the unknown God. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. He's looking for a jumping off point and a starting point. I put it to you this way. Paul is looking for a place to plant his foot in their world and pivot towards the gospel and Christ. We've got too many Christians completely outside of their world shouting at them. He looked for a place to plant his foot and pivot towards the gospel, which means he had to know enough about what's going on. Because notice, I love this. He was aware of some of what they were thinking and writing. Gasp. He apparently was reading more than just his Old Testament scriptures because he quoted from one of their poets. And you might be that person saying, we don't need to quote anything they say to give affirmation to what the Bible says. I know that, but it can be helpful. He reached over and grabbed a quote from one of their poets and said, even one of your poets says, we're, that can be helpful, folks. That can be helpful. Here's how I would say it to you, folks. I want to encourage you, don't just dive into the culture and get swallowed up by it. But also don't live so cut off from the culture, you know nothing about what they're thinking, saying, believing, or wrestling with. Read some of what they're reading. Listen to some of what they're listening to. Go to some of the places that they go without defiling yourself. Everything is not heinous, folks. Read some of what they're... I I read other books. I just finished reading classic Frankenstein. I'm reading Tom Sawyer now. And I'll read some of the bestsellers, even from people that are atheists, to hear it. I know Pastor Ken here in our church often listens to NPR, National Public Radio. You need to hear what they're saying. You're not going to agree with a lot of it, but you'll hear it. If we just huddle up and we just all say to each other what we all believe, that is not that helpful for engaging in our world. What are they saying? What are they believing? What are they listening to? And again, it is to have a starting... Just yesterday, I'm sitting in the bleachers at Dixie High School at the football field. My daughter, Sarah, is in a powder puff girls football game. Amazing. Not. <laughs> and I'm sitting there in the stands. And when we got home, Vicky said to me, Honey, I was proud of you the way you... There's a fellow sitting next to me that his daughter's out there. I was proud of you the way you talked about the Bengals and football. You knew who the new receivers were. And you, you had a question about Marvin Lewis and da, da, da. Folks, there's a reason to the glory of God that you can love football. There. Right there. He knows I'm a pastor. And I think it's helpful when they think it's not all you. I don't just sit there and think, Jesus. That's all I know. It would be helpful to have some other things you can talk about. And, and, and so, so I'm going to say it. I, I think it is actually helpful to have some interest and to be passionate about cooking or history, or architecture, or music, or these things are God things. They get abused, but these are good things. You can care about some other things and then look for opportunities as you're with people who also are jazzed with this, that you're the Christian who's jazzed with this for different reasons and can pivot and turn towards Jesus and the gospel. But let me point out a final tragic mistake you don't want to make. Don't just argue over all kinds of issues and fail to offer the only hope for them of the gospel and Jesus. Here's what I mean by this. In my conversations, and I I assume you're finding it the same way, people don't come up to me and say, "You're, you're a Christian? Hey, what do you think about Jesus? No. Homosexuality. So you're that Christian. What you, what, uh, uh, gender. Da, da. These are the hot buttons. Evolution, creationism. I hope you can give some credible answers to some degree for creationism versus evolution. I hope you can give some credible answers about gender and sexuality and purity and morality. But listen to me. Don't spend all your time debating all this and not move it to Jesus. Because listen to me. Almost always, you'll have to be the one that moves it to Jesus. I've never had someone interrupt and say, you know what? This is kind of exhausting. You seem to have answers. Just tell me about Jesus. No. I'm the one that says, you know what? There's more we could say about this. There's things you could read. But you need to consider Jesus. Never mind creation, evolution. Never mind gender. Jesus came. 
You need to consider, he's credible. There's historical evidence for Jesus. You need to, I am the one that has to move it to Jesus. I've never had someone say, stop it. I don't want to talk about Jesus. I haven't had it happen yet. You will have to be the one to move it to Jesus. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about because it was great. A few weeks ago, we had testimony services, but I know we have four services, so only one group heard this because one guy went to the microphone that's in our church. He's a member, but I loved his testimony. So I reached out and said, would you write that down and let me read it? Because I want all of you to hear it today. He says this. He says, I work for a Christian apologetics organization. I often speak to many skeptics who come to conferences. Recently at a conference, I spoke to a man who was asking me lots of questions and responding quickly with objections to every answer I gave him. And seemed to be enjoying a good debate. I could see that the debate with him could have gone on for hours. And so I asked if I could just share something really important from the Bible. This was pretty bold, but loving. He said, I read to him from 2 Corinthians 4, 4 that says, quote, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I told him that verse is talking about spiritual blindness to the truth that exists because he is separated from God. And then I shared with him his real position as a sinner before God a holy, righteous judge. But then I talked about God's amazing grace in Jesus dying for us and rising from the dead. Oh, listen to what he says next. The only time in our conversation that he stopped talking, got quiet and actually teared up was when I was telling him about the incredible love of Jesus available to him in the gospel. He says, I'm not saying that apologetics isn't helpful He works full-time for an organization. It can be very helpful, and I'm thankful we have the Bible and that it's true and it's defendable. Oh, but hear this. But more and more, I'm realizing that my confidence is not in my apologetic arguments, but in the power of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Guess what? You don't have to be an apologetic whiz to move it to Jesus and share this amazing story of God's love for lost sinners. You can do that. And that's where I think Paul was headed. I have to kind of assume this, but I think it's fair. That's where Paul, I think, was headed with his sermon, but it got cut off. Did you notice this sermon kind of just gets cut off? He doesn't really finish. In verse 32, it's cut off because when he mentions the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they just burst out and begin to mock and it shuts the meeting down. Because see, in verse 31, we saw it. He's already talked to them about Jesus is God's appointed one who will judge. Everyone must repent now. But we also know Paul, Paul was fond of sharing that same Jesus who will be your judge one day became your savior on the cross. He stepped under and into the wrath of God and became sin for us and took our sin. You could tell someone who took your sin on him and paid the price so that you won't face the wrath of God. Only Jesus could do that and only Jesus did do that. Come to Christ. That's what the most famous verse in all the Bible is about in John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus died for lost sinners. Now you can't say to people, today he delays his return. His arms are open. He delays his return out of compassion and love for lost sinners. Today you can receive him as savior. If you resist or wait, you will stand before him as judge. But today he's savior, savior, whosoever will may come. He says, today he's crying out, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest, rest, rest. And don't be surprised. Last thing I want to point out. Don't be surprised at different responses to this message of hope. It's always been that way, and it always will be that way. The last three verses of our chapter show that when he shared this, some mocked, 
Some said, we want to hear more about this. And some, right on the spot, joined him and believed. Here's what I want you to think about. I love it. We saw it in Acts 4.4 already. That word, however. It doesn't matter how much they mock and rail against us, folks. Doesn't matter how much of a minority you feel like. Doesn't matter how outgunned we feel with dollars and marketing or lack thereof. Folks, because God's spirit is on the move and our God is a compassionate God and he's lifting up his son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit is working, there will always be a glorious however. We saw it in Acts 4.4. They were disturbed. They were angry over the message. And it says, however... Acts 4, 4, many believed. We got it again here. However, verse 34 of our passage, some believed. Some believed. It's not our job to put the sickle in and harvest. It's our job to share the good news. Our Lord will be the Lord of the harvest. Just share the good news. Give this message of the love of Jesus and the gospel. But let me make another suggestion regarding these categories. So some mock. Some say, we'll hear you more on this. You might be like me. Sometimes you might feel like, I just gave it my all. I really don't have anything else I could tell you. So let's not get together again, because I don't know what I would say. That was all I had right there. I ran it up the flagpole. I'm done. I hope someone else can help you further. You know what you can do? Listen to me. Let me make a suggestion. And more people will take you up on it than you think. You don't have to be the one that tells them more. Let the scriptures tell them more. Say, have you ever read the Bible? You say, Brad, nobody's going to. You'd be surprised. Have you ever read the Bible? Here's how I'll say it. I'll say, I encourage you to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to see Jesus. It records what he said and what he did here on the earth. And then I encourage you to read the New Testament because it explains why he did what he did. And how it impacts us. Here's what I truly believe, folks. Most people who say they don't believe in Christianity have a hugely inaccurate understanding of what Christianity is even all about. We don't have the luxury of introducing this for the first time. You're not running into people that are like, I've never heard of Christianity. Sadly, they've already heard of it and maybe got some ugly version of it or grew up in a church with an ugly version of it or live next door to some hateful, arrogant Christian That's what we're up against. So don't say, oh, please don't throw the the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not asking you to consider what you think about the church. I'm not asking you on all these issues. Consider Jesus. He's worthy of your consideration. He's an historical figure. It's credible. Consider Jesus. Point them to Jesus and ask them to read the Bible. There, folks, there's a clarity and authority And something about the Bible that is unlike any other book. People say it all the time. There's such authority there. There's such clarity there. There is. There's such a, it all fits together there that's unlike any other book. The Bible is powerful. Let the Bible do some of this work. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Kelly Monroe Kohlberg wrote a book called Finding God at Harvard that I wrote. It was great. Guess what? God's at Harvard. There are some Christians at Harvard that again tell us we need to be everywhere. So here's what she says, quote, in her book. I grew up an atheist while in high school. I had looked at many of the arguments for the existence of God. And I came to the conclusion that there was no God. Furthermore, my scientific training in high school and college had nurtured in me a mechanistic view of the universe. I did not believe in a God, let alone a creator who was intimately involved in the affairs of man. But listen to this. During my first semester at Harvard Medical School, at the suggestion of Christian friends and acquaintances, hit pause. Look at me. She had some Christian friends. There were some Christians that didn't just push away from, oh, she's this atheist. They weren't just huddled up in their Christian meetings. They made friends with her. She had some Christian friends at their suggestion. They said, why don't you read the Bible. I began to examine the Bible and to investigate the Christian faith. It was a reasonable request. I had, and here's, this is so often true. I had never before read the Bible, but only what others said about it. And listen to this. At the very least, I thought, after reading their book, I would be able to tell Christians more accurately why they were wrong. Then she says, unfortunately, or rather fortunately for me, the word of God is living and active And sharper than any two-edged sword. As I examined the Bible in detail for the very first time, 
my mind began to change. Folks, you hear stories like testimonies like this all the time. Rosario Butterfield, in her book, A Most Unlikely Convert, she was a tenured professor at Syracuse in, in literature, leading the gay movement on camp- campus, living with another woman. This was not someone like poised already to be very open to the gospel. And it was through doing research with the Bible as a research project, as well as a kind, loving Christian that didn't scream at her, that God brought the gospel into her life and she was radically transformed. Kelly Monroe says, I saw the distortions and the misquotations of those who had argued against the Christian faith and I saw the philosophical and historical evidences for Christianity. I want to say something as I close to three different groups of people that I think are probably sitting here. If you're here and you're not a Christian and you just say, I'm not, and here's why. Because just what you said, Brad, I have had a brush with, or maybe it's all I seem to encounter, harsh, angry, arrogant, condemning, talk down to me, push away from me, seem to be disgusted with me, Christians. And there is nothing attractive about that to me. Hear me. On behalf of the church of Jesus Christ and our Savior who gave his life, forgive us. They did not represent our Savior well at all. And here's the other thing I want you to understand. So often when you get one of those, the world will say, oh, they're such a fanatic. They're way too passionate about Christianity and Jesus. That's why they're like that. If they would just tone it down and be more moderate, that is not true. The opposite is true. When you are truly passionate about Jesus Christ and you love him and you know him and you're fervent about the gospel and you understand it and love it, how it's shaping you, you begin to have the heart of your savior and you will be one of the most humble, loving, truthful persons that someone could be. People would want to be around you even if they disagree with what you think. My word would be, They need to be more passionate than they are. They need to spend more time with Jesus than they did. Because if you're harsh, condemning, solely judgmental, you're not representing your Savior. Look to Jesus. Read the Gospels and you won't see him talking to you that way. Read the Gospels. But there's a second group that might be sitting here. That you'd be that person that says, all right, as far as I'm concerned, I'm kind of neutral or as the first group is, is really resistant and has been turned off. I'm just neutral to this whole Christianity thing, but here's why. You Christians have faith. And I wish I had that kind of faith, but I don't. Look at me. You do have that kind of faith. You couldn't be living today without putting your faith in something. It's just not Jesus. Human beings cannot get up day after day and do what they do without building their world around something, reason, connecting this, without worshiping something, without a drive towards something. It's just that your faith is in something else. The question is, what is it? What is it? Is it your career? Is it sexual pleasure? Is it your own attractiveness? Is it your athletic abilities? Is it your intellectual prowess? Is it all that money can buy or you hope it will buy one day when you get it? Listen to me. You have your faith placed and your hopes placed on and in something else. But listen to me. Sooner than you think, it will fail you. It will crush you. It will leave you disillusioned and beginning the search all over again. Because nothing short of a living relationship with Jesus Christ that connects you with your creator, God of the universe, can satisfy you and sustain you. Come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. Your faith is somewhere else. Put your faith in Christ. And finally, there's a third great group that I do want to address. If you're here and you'd say, I'm a Christian. I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Brad. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christ follower. Then my question to you is are you provoked right now, 2016, with all that's going on, are you provoked in the same way Paul was provoked as he stood in the Agora at Athens? Or are you just filled with rage and fear? 
It's time to sit at the feet of your Savior and say, fill me with love to go out into our world like you would if you were here right now today. Give me strong, contradictory feelings that rip through me rather than just rage that grips me. You need the strong, contradictory feelings of both indignation and compassion, and you'll get it when you spend some quiet time reflecting again on where you were before he saved you. And then, with those strong, contradictory feelings, how much, to what degree... Do you take your faith with you into the marketplace? Come on. Again, I'm not, I don't want to scare you. I'm not saying stand on your desk and preach a sermon. I'm not. But let it be real. Don't leave your faith at home in this little box, in this corridor, in this hallway. Go. The people that happen to be there. And go praying. God, show me someone I could start a conversation with. Show me that moment where I could move it to a spiritual thing. Give me eyes to see. Part of the problem is Christians just don't even see people. It's like people don't exist. Ask God to help you see people and to slow you down. The other reason, you know the other problem? We're just too darn busy. Eliminate some things from your life so that you can have a little more time between the house and the grocery store that if there was a conversation, you don't have to say, I can't talk to this person. Stop living so frantic and start living intentionally for what matters most. Oh, how I would love for it to be said of us. These are those people who have turned northern Kentucky, Cincinnati, southern Indiana upside down. Not because we're so powerful, not because we have so much money and such a slick marketing plan or beautiful facilities, but because we take our faith with us and we love Jesus and we're brokenhearted for lost sinners. Oh God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit in us. Thank you for direct access to your throne. Thank you that we don't have to guess. Oh, these are hard times. These are scary times. I wish we knew what Jesus would want us to do. I wish we knew how we can engage this culture. Oh, thank you for the Bible. We would be so clueless and so fearful and so confused without your word. Your word time and again proves itself so relevant, so relevant exactly what we need when we need it to live for the glory of God. Change us. For any unbeliever here, oh God, make Christ lovely to them now. Cause him to loom large and the church or whatever's hurt them small. And for believers, stir us. Stir, bring back the compassion We pray in Jesus' name, amen.